Hey folks, welcome to episode 104 of A Pint with Shawnee B. I just want to take some time to fill you in on the whole Patreon situation. Patreon is a respected way for podcasters to start monetizing their service. I feel a bit weird, as I said before, about asking people to contribute. It works as a monthly subscription where you're asked to just give your credit card details a bit like Netflix and pledge a euro, a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, whatever you can afford to keep the podcast on the road. Uh, Since I've started, I've been asking friends and a lot of you have come forward and supported the podcast, which is amazing. And I'm really appreciative to all of you who have done so. The whole concept of monetizing podcasts is fraught, for want of a better word. There's something like 250,000 podcasts are released every week into the wild. And um, that's a lot of people uh, looking for sponsorship or support. The other approach to monetization is through advertising. Even as an ex-ad man myself, I was and I have resisted that. That's not to say that if someone came and offered me two grand per podcast, I wouldn't bite their hand off. But the sort of numbers that you're being uh, offered in terms of uh, sponsorship by advertisers, which also would include a long, interminable uh, message like this, talking about Squarespace or Blue Apron or Audible.com or mattresses. And, you know, it just, to me, feels a bit grubby. And one of the reasons, as I keep saying, that I think podcasts have actually come to the fore in the last few years is a really dramatic misread by the media companies of the world for the appetite that people have to in-depth, long-form radio for when they're in the gym, for when they're walking, for when they're on the bus, on the tube, wherever. We have an appetite as a species for longer stories and not the soundbite culture, the Twitter culture and the sheep dip culture of American chat shows where you really only scratch the surface of a problem or an issue or a person. So I am asking people to help and I am asking people to contribute. And if you can, great. You go to www.patreon.com backslash Shawnee B. You follow the prompts to become a patron. It'll ask you to give your credit card and you then subscribe to a monthly amount. I'm very happy if you just make that monthly amount a dollar. Where does the money go? It will help keep the podcast tipping away. The podcast does have expenses attached to it. It has uh, subscriptions to SoundCloud, who are my host. It has trips to London and hotels and stuff like that to pick up uh, interviews. So it's not that I'm going to be making tons of money out of all of this, but it does really help. It's also anti-corporation. Basically, this is a cottage industry, the podcast industry, and will only really survive if listeners understand that they're not contributing to some big evil corporation like Rupert Murdoch, Fox News, and all that kind of stuff, uh, and instead are giving a small amount for what they believe a podcast is worth to the originator of the podcast. That's my plea. That's my request. If you have the money, if you have the time, it'll only take three minutes. And if you are a regular listener and you would like to support, I'd really, really appreciate it. Anyway, on to today's episode. It's episode 104, a good one today. A guy called Kess Gray. Kess Gray used to work in the ad business and he's a self-confessed ideas junkie. He has a great story. He's now one of Britain's most preeminent children's book authors and For a while there, a few years ago, every man and his mother were basically writing children's books as far as I could see. He does give a very interesting picture to any of you budding authors or children's books authors out there as to the reality behind monetizing children's books. Kess is also a guy who, when he left advertising, put a lot of his money and a lot of his time into trying to get lots of products and new ideas across lots of different categories, which we've all thought about doing. And he has some uh, conciliatory lessons for us all. We spoke and sat down at the Kinsale Advertising Festival, the Sharks Awards, about a month ago. And so without further ado, this is a good one. I'm giving you Kess Gray. He has an amazing journey where he is now one of the preeminent children's book authors in the UK. He's got over 50 books to his name. 80 now. 80 now. Whatever I read in my research, it was 50. That was probably only two years ago. 
He's one of the most unique people I've ever heard speak, and I'm really looking forward to it. I'm welcoming Kes Gray. How are you, sir? I'm good. Much happier now I've got that over and done with. Yeah, we was, yeah. so we were at the Kinsale Advertising Festival in uh, Cork in Ireland, and Kes was one of the keynote speakers here and just had the entire room in thrall about three hours ago. And I, I have never met him before, so this is our first our first meeting. You grew up in the 1960s. Let's get that out of the way. What was it like growing up in, in, in Essex in the 1960s? What was your childhood like? Um, I had a really happy childhood. I grew up on a, on a housing estate called Molsham Lodge. Um, my mum and dad had no money. But what did they do? Was well, it? my dad was a printer. My mum was a housewife. Later on in her life, she became a part-time M&S worker. My childhood was the kind of childhood that a lot of kids don't have anymore in the sense that I used to do things that are probably now illegal, might have been illegal then. You know, I used to go uh, bird's nesting with my dad. We'd go into woods, we'd go into forests, we'd go into, you know, fields and we'd be looking for bird's eggs, which I know is wrong, but actually I became, you know, the countryside of me became kind of inseparable. Bird's nesting is collecting the eggs and, and collecting them the eggs. glass and having. Yeah, my dad was a printer, so we had a printer's tray, that's what right. we put the eggs in, and yeah. then we'd leave them up there until um, somebody went up to service the boiler and trod all over them. <laughs> You know, that was always, that was the fate of a lot of uh, yeah. bird's egg collections. But we used to go fossil hunting, you know. Mm. Uh, I had a best friend across the road. He was born a week before me. We were inseparable. So were our families. We used to go over to a sand and quarry. And in those days, you could just go into a quarry and go wherever you like of a weekend and just look for fossils. So I did that, a lot of, a lot of football. I used to play football in the street yeah. and uh, knock on the door and run. Yeah, uh, I used to do them, that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, were you any use football? I was. Were you handy? We well, actually, I, I was. Um, I don't think I was actually, but uh, I don't think you had to be good at football to be good at football in those days. Mm. I was centre half. I was the school captain. One of my earliest memories of football was I was in the third year, and I was picked to play in the fourth year team, and I, I, I was rubbish. <laughs> I was absolutely rubbish, <laughs> and uh, and I remember coming back off the pitch going into the cloakroom and Hello. listening to the fourth years going what a pile of crap that kid is and do you know what I did I went home absolutely devastated and uh, I got up early the next morning and went back into the playground first thing because that's when we used to play against the fourth years third years against fourth years I went back in and I thought right I'm going to show you what I can do but with a proper ball was tennis ball because obviously I was spotted by the fourth years with a tennis ball. The moment yeah. you put me on a pitch with a I big ball, with, the ball, with a big ball, yeah. couldn't do it. I was terrified. You know? I had I had a terrible. I mean, it's interesting that you're framing your childhood as very happy. Doesn't happen a lot on the show, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. Um, I had an incident with when I was about uh, eight or seven. We were playing Gaelic football in Croke Park, which is the Wembley of Ireland. Yeah. And our team got to the final, and there was training two days before, and my mother was about to give birth to twins, and I. My dad said, you can't go training. And I was desolated because I was going, this is the last training before yeah. the thing. And in fairness to my dad, he worked a way of getting me to training. I scored three goals yeah. in training yeah. and three points. Yeah. And I had a blinder. Yes. And we went to Croke Park and I wasn't on the team. There were two coaches. One of the coaches was at training. The other yeah. one wasn't. We win the cup. And then we went to some place for minerals and sandwiches. And the other coach turned up and he said, you know what, Sean? And I was eight. He said, if you'd been at training yesterday, we might have put you in the team. Yeah, yeah. And the other guy was there, and the other guy went, no, 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 he wasn't <laughs> training. And I cried. Yeah, yeah. I was so devastated with that meanness of that. And I had yes. done as good as I could have done. Yeah. And I wasn't put on the team. And I was yeah. like, you... I've never forgotten that yeah. little prick. Yeah. Mr. Curran, if you're listening. Mr. Yeah. McDonald, you were the one who was okay, but... The, the idea that you have, you've, you've now wrapped yourself up as in, in children's books, and we're going to come to the journey as to how you got there. The importance of your childhood, I mean, listening to the adventure. You went on adventures. Yeah, kids don't do that anymore. The thing about uh, what, what's happened to kids over the years is their play parameters have shrunk ma yeah. massively. Mm. I think at the age of six or seven, I was walking two miles across the housing estate yeah. with my mate, to school we'd go to the woods play we'd make a den we would go out on our bikes in the dark I don't think it ever crossed my mum's mind or my dad's mind yeah. that we wouldn't come home you know as a parent now I mean my, my kids are, are 28 26 and 17 now but mm. 
you just you live in fear as a parent mm. uh, you just you just think you know i can't let my children go and do the things that i did and i try to champion those things in my books but if i'm honest first day i i actually allowed my daughter to walk to, i live in school road you know i live in school road so guess <laughs> it was how, in the question so guess how guess how <laughs> where's far the school the school is just in the road. my road it's in my road and i said okay uh you can walk to school it's, it's about a hundred yard walk wow. And she was probably in, uh, you know, year six or something. And uh, I said, "Just terrified." So, cheerio, see ya. And do you know what I did? The moment Followed she, her. I, I, I hid. <laughs> I went out and hid behind a post uh. just to make sure she got there. And yeah. it was kind of counter to everything that uh, that I, I'd grown up with. Well, I uh, never had kids, possibly yeah. for that sort of reason, because I yeah. think I would, Molly. I'd be terrified. Yeah. Yeah. something terrible would happen to them yeah. and, and then probably stifle them and then they'd hate me yeah. Yeah. Your, your daughter hates you for another reason we're going to come up we're going to come back to later in the oh podcast God. Oh God. Um, see I remember everything yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'm not going to go hugely into your advertising career because I want to yeah, talk about the, yeah. the rest of it and yeah, I have lo- yeah, I've had loads yeah. of bad people on this I yeah. just want to say a few things about yeah. your advertising career Kess yeah. has worked at probably some of the greatest advertising agencies and has made certainly two of my favorite ads. One is Dam Busters for Carding Black Label. There'll be a link to that at the end of the podcast. Another one which I really loved when it came out, which you didn't mention today, yeah. which was the Prudential campaign, oh, yeah. which I really love. Yeah. Uh, I want to be together again. There's links to that. A bit like me, didn't want to set up his own agency, didn't want to become a board member. I think allergic to the internal politics, is that fair? And all the crap that goes with managing teams, and you just yeah, wanted to do I ideas. Yeah, I just, uh, I just literally wanted to sit in a room, close the door, and have ideas. When I was used to liking us to sausage machines, we'd produce a sausage, get it stamped on by by research or whatever. Have another, have another idea, have another idea, have another idea. And I actually loved that. You know, I used to. It didn't daunt me at all. No, I uh, loved it. As and well. I loved doing it. Prior to, uh, I'm best known for Dan Busters. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, my life as a creative was very, very simple and pure, really. I just used to sit in a room, have ideas, and once you cracked a brief or whatever, people would come into your room, run away with your ad, come back and and go, hey, guys, it's it's made. They bought it. And there was a period in my career at WCRS where that was all that happened to me, really. Mm. Everything that I did, I liked, pretty much, and everything that I liked got made. That was heaven. But I think... You know, you do get seduced by success. There's a little worm in your head that says, and it's a fault of the industry, actually, because your job as a creative is to is to have good ideas. Your job as a creative is to is to do award winning advertising. Mm. But when we get when we do it, we just go, come on, everybody. okay, you know, receive me. I want a pay rise. I want a new car. I want this. I want that. You know, it it was lovely to be uh, paid more money. And but what I did find was that suddenly the game changed for me because if you do a good ad, people jump on you. Agencies look around and go, we need him, we need her to come and work in our agency. You know, as a children's author, um, if you have a degree of success as a children's author, suddenly people go, come and tell us why and how you write. How and why do you do that? What's your yeah. approach to it? I don't know, I don't think about it. Yeah. But as a creative director, you're supposed to kind of share that knowledge, that yeah. wisdom. And the moment you start to overthink anything that you do, you're kind of dead I in the agree. water, I, I think. Agree. But you, you seem to be very... Uh, have a pure confidence in your ideas and, I then, do. You get, and then they kind of felt you uh, but you kept going absolutely because mm. I'm a sausage machine I just have another idea and right. another and another and I, and I knew instinctively that the management wasn't for me um, and I said to my art director look okay I'll give it a year if I don't like it I'm, I'm, I'm off I can remember we'd walk up and they, we'd look at the floor and go what's that and they go oh it's the think tank it's a hole in the floor yes. with a carpet squid in it Um, And it's basically, it's going to help you have ideas. And you just think, no, it's not. It's not. Um, Yeah, there's a football table and a slide as well. Yes, all that kind of stuff. And and I I didn't really feel comfortable in that environment. I was now meeting clients. I was talking to clients. I suddenly found out about, you know, I knew whether the client was... You almost know whether he was having problems with his wife and all that sort of thing. And I didn't need to know any of that stuff. But also, I, I like a creative challenge. And when you start to receive briefs that have five single-minded messages in one brief, <laughs> I start to look at it and go, "Well, actually, I understand why they're—I understand why they're doing that. Mm-hmm. Can I crack that? Can I? Can I solve that? Yeah, I could. But obviously, to the detriment of the ads that you're producing. I think at some point, you know, you start looking around. You look at the work you're producing. It wasn't good enough, but I could defend it to the hill, and I've always yeah. defended my work. And then you start to feel sorry for yourself, mm-hmm. and then you start to blame everybody but yourself. 
and um, I just knew that for me to be as good as I could creatively be I had to leave the industry and try something else so that's why I, I, I jumped eventually because as I said I left uh, Sartes in 2002 and I was broke almost immediately because yeah. yeah. I gave up my salary I gave up a, a massive salary which I didn't care about but then when you can't pay your bills then you have to start caring about yeah. it uh, money's never been important to me I know it's easy to say that but it isn't important yeah. I mean, the most important thing to me is my family my friends and the work I'm doing and if the work I'm doing is anything less than something to be proud of I'll beat myself up and I started beating myself up big time and when I left the industry it sometimes worries me that people thought I'd defected or I'd, I'd kind of been disloyal to an industry that I absolutely adored there's no loyalty in the industry yeah well I am a loyal be, person yeah, yeah, you know I don't there's none corresponding back from the yeah, of these companies um, you're only as good if, you, if you're not performing you're out yeah care about you. but I'd just become I'd kind of mutated into into a, an advertising creature that I didn't really understand very anyone. I was unhappy I was very unhappy did that affect your Mass- personal life and all that well, you know, it affected me in different ways. And actually, when I look back, you know, uh, I've been down a bar talking to a client um, that I'm working with. And then after 10 minutes talking to the client, I've suddenly realized it's not the client I thought it was. It's right. somebody completely different. And then you go through this little process in your head. You're going, oh, shit. Yeah. You're not who I think you are. What have I just said? Yeah. How much of that is he sitting there, standing there thinking, where's he coming? When, when like, that did you turn to booze and stuff? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, yeah. I mean, the whole industry was about that. Yeah, still, uh, but yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, we'd go. I'd go down the pub or wine bar with my art director, and we'd we'd have like I don't know three bottles of wine or something. Yeah. Then we'd try and sneak into the agency through kind of an underground, labyrinth. you know, labyrinth. And I can remember one time we doing it, and we we knew that if we went down here, turned left, went around there, you know, without a ball of wool, we didn't need yeah, a ball yeah, of wool yeah, to yeah. get, you know. And then we went up the stairs, opened the opened the door. Who did we bump into? You know, the executive creative director. And he looked at us. We looked at him, and nothing was said. But I you did go home man. thinking, "Oh God, <laughs> I'd become the kind of creative I didn't respect when I was a young gun." True, yeah. You know, and also you have to you lead used, by example. You used to look yeah. around as a young gun. You'd look around the house, you're going, "Well, you've hung up your boots. You, you know, yeah, you're moaning yeah, too." Yeah, you know, yeah. and I kind of became that person. So all these things came together and you went, I've had enough. Talk to me about just that Jerry Maguire moment. I think this came a bit later, but the time you just stood up and walked out. I'd been working in an agency and I'd, you know, I'd been trying very hard to deliver a TV commercial for a client. It had been a tricky process because the budget was the budget and the client wanted to shoot. Uh, he wanted autumnal feel. It wasn't autumn. To do that, you need to go to another country, and then it became everything started bouncing back. You know, we can't afford this, we can't do that. And when I presented the casting, the client said, I don't like the casting. So I said, Well, can I just say that the consensus from our side is is that this this is absolutely fantastic casting? And the client said to me, This is not for discussion. And then I I don't know what happened. It was like, you know, I'm not a confrontational person, I've never, I've never ever had a a row with anybody yeah. in the business and I don't know what happened to me but I just stood up I then said I've worked my nuts off to try and deliver something I know what I'm doing and I'm actually pretty good at my job and you're telling me it's not for discussion I then got his name wrong and said uh, I'll tell you this you know Charlie <laughs> I mean Jeff yeah, I mean yeah. <laughs> Um, and then and I and then I just said okay, and I started shaking everybody's hands around the table, apart from his. And I said uh, I can't do this anymore. Goodbye, 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 goodbye. And I walked out of the um, as jaws hit the table. I yeah. walked out of the uh, room, and uh, I went back to my office. And then I was called down to the managing director's office. I was told that I'd, uh, what I'd done was a bit of a disgrace and that I'd let everybody down and I was asked whether I would have done it if it had been a bigger client and I said yes I would have I would have done the same thing and I was told it was unacceptable and that uh, I had an hour to compose oh, yeah. myself so I went back to my room and uh, sat in my room for an hour and then I went back to the MD's room and um, I said to him okay I've been thinking about it and as far as I can see I've got two choices I can either let everybody down 
or I can let myself down. So I'm going to let everybody down. I've decided I'm going to let everybody down. And that was pretty much it. And I, I went home. Meaning you were going to walk away and not apologise. Yes, Which, I wasn't going to apologise. But if I was one of the everybody, I would not be saying you were letting me down. Well, I didn't know that. I'd just reached a point where something had to give. give yeah. And I had two choices. I either kind of swallowed my pride and and carried on doing what I was doing. And I knew inside You've that it wasn't the right thing. thing to do. But of course, for me to, uh, to leave advertising, I had to sell my house because I couldn't pay the bills and I had a massive mortgage and all of that. Yeah. You know, that night I went home. My wife came home. Hi, honey, how's your day? And I went... Not good. Uh, <laughs> I've left. And she was fantastic, absolutely fantastic about it. She said, look, you know, time for a change. Mm. Uh, we'll sell the house. I hate the house anyway. It's too big. It takes me too, you know, too long to tidy it up all the time. And It was very nice throughout your presentation today how often she came into the picture. Yeah, uh, and how supportive she's been. I know lots of guys in advertising who, if they did that, their wife would probably leave them. Yeah. Well, the thing is, you know, I know it's. Uh, I started going out with my wife on the third of March, nineteen seventy-nine. Wow. So we've known each other uh, forever. That's mad. She knows what I'm like, and she's always believed in me. Uh, even before I went into advertising, she was the person. I remember being at school and I, was, I met a schoolmate and his dad was in advertising. I said, I think I'm going to advertise. And he said, you'll never make it in advertising. And I went home and said to my then girlfriend, well, Pierce says I'll never make it in advertising. Yeah. She said, yeah, you will. So all the way through everything I've done uh, and all the wrong decisions I've made, and I have made some right ones, but there was a lot of wrong ones. She's always believed in me. She's always, she's an accountant yeah. and she's the one that I had to juggle numbers yeah. the numbers and they got quite big they got very big I spent fortunes on <laughs> so we're, that, that's uh, phase one of Kez's life I, now it starts getting really interesting okay mm-hmm. not that that wasn't interesting yeah. I'm gonna he became a children's writer which you all know I would I've asked if he wouldn't mind reading some of his picture books because they're short and they're really emotive and very mm-hmm. nice so introduce us to your first well I'll kick off with uh, the book that's kind of um, turned my life around in the end. It's a book that took me 16 years to write. Uh, It's called I Frog. And um, don't ask me why, but it's just landed in a way that 79 of my other books didn't land. Is it my favourite book? I don't know. It is now, I guess. You know, Mm -hmm. it's certainly my wife's favourite book because it's paying the bills. (laughs) I think everybody comes into the world understanding that... Cats sit on mats and frogs sit on logs. We all know that. It's mm-hmm. a given. And for some reason, one day, I started to uh, ask myself the question that David Attenborough has never actually uh, nailed. What are all the other animals in the world meant to be sitting on? And it uh, it starts something like this. Oi, frog, sit on a log, said the cat. I don't want to sit on a log, said the frog. Logs are all knobbly and uncomfortable and they can give you splinters in your bottom. I don't care, said the cat. You're a frog. So you must sit on a log. Can't I sit on a mat? Said the frog. Only cats sit on mats. Well, what about a chair? I wouldn't mind sitting on a chair. Hares sit on chairs, said the cat. What about a stall? Said the frog. Mules sit on stalls, said the cat. Well, what about a sofa then? I could stretch right out on a sofa. Gophers sit on sofas, said the cat. It's very simple, really. Cats sit on mats, hares sit on chairs, mules sit on stalls, gophers sit on sofas, and frogs sit on logs. What do lions sit on? said the frog. (laughs) Lions sit on irons, said the cat. Ouch, said the uh, frog. What about parrots? Parrots sit on carrots, said the cat. Lions sit on irons and parrots sit on carrots. Don't sound very comfortable, said the frog. <laughs> it's not about being comfortable, said the cat. Yeah. It's about doing the right thing. Brilliant. This is one of a series. Uh, oi frog, oi dog, oi cat, and oi duckbill platypus. Oi duckbill platypus. Um, are, are they all similar in construct, or, or is it about sitting, or is, it, is that just the it's frog It's about one? sitting. Um, the frog one has a lovely twist in the end, though, listen. So you have to buy the book to find out what happens. Yeah. But it is a very, very yeah. little bit sad twist in the end. I've never actually done a sequel before because Oifrog did very well and um, 
proved very popular. And then, of course, I was asked the question, will you do a sequel? And I said, no, I don't do sequels because yeah. I'm always worried that a sequel won't live up to the uh, the original. My wife, who has been watching me for the last... later. <laughs> Come on, Kez, there's, there's a chance here you might actually sell some books here. <laughs> so how's about doing a sequel? And I said, no, not doing one. Absolutely not. I said, and anyway, there aren't any more rhymes, you know. Mm. And she said, that's a load of nonsense. Of course, there's some more rhymes. Mm. We were going to a wedding in Wales and uh, she said, come on, we're going to write, you know, we're going to do the sequel. So I said, I'll tell you what, I'll drive, you get in the notepad. And all the way down to Wales, we thought of some more rhymes. And I said to her, well, I'll tell you what, if uh, if we get to get to Wales mm. and I've got enough rhymes for a book, I'll make you the joint author. So I did. Yeah. Uh, there were enough rhymes. I did make uh, my wife Claire the joint author. Great. And um, I fired her shortly afterwards <laughs> because she got unbearable. And then, of course, uh, once Oi Dog happened, I was asked again to write the threequel. And um, I said, nope, 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 nope. Went down the pub. And um, by the time I came out of the pub, I had the mm. number three nailed. Number four, Duckbill Platypus, is really about the dilemma that, that I faced as, a, as, a, as, as the author because after three books mm. and after Googling every rhyming animal on the planet, mm-hmm. I realized there weren't any more. I couldn't get another book out of it. Right. And so, of course, what happens in, um, in the new book, The Frog Meets a Duckbill Platypus, confronts the duckbill platypus immediately and it says oi duckbill platypus sit on a don't tell me and then of course he looks at the cat Something and goes no. no he uh, looks at the cat and whispers what sits on you know what, uh, what rhymes with duckbill platypus and the cat just goes absolutely nothing ah, so it's a quest for so, what rhymes yeah, so of course the dilemma for the frog is what the hell is the uh, duckbill platypus going to sit on mm. The duckbill platypus says, I'm waiting. And then, of course, you turn the page and there's a huge crowd of animals that go, we're all waiting too, said a, a large crowd of animals with impossible to rhyme with names. Right. What are we meant to be sitting on? Yeah. And, of course, the frog has to work out what an echidna sits on or an alligator or a crocodile <laughs> or, a, or, a, or a, a hippopotamus. Brilliant. Um, we now have the end point. So 17 years went by before he got to the point where his 79th, 80th, 81st or whatever book was the one that hit. And there's loads of reasons why it didn't happen. And I'm just going to openly ask him, how come it took so long? What did you do? Um, the the honest answer is I don't know because every book I do pretty much I love. There are no magic formulas. If everybody knew what was going to make people run to the bookshop we'd all be doing it I think Oi Frog works on lots of levels for, for lots of people I am apparently a phonics genius I didn't even know what phonics was mm. I've been told it's it's a big phonics uh, exercise for right. kids they love it I wasn't taught phonics at school so if I am a phonics genius it's uh, it's completely by accident mm. it's all about the fun of yeah. um, You're a, a simple simple <laughs> phonics yes like that um, did I say that or did you say that? I said that. You can have it. You can have it. Oh, You're on my uh, podcast. Too late. Take it. Um, so it kind of works for it works for teachers. It works for mm. mums. Works for dads. It works mm. for you know. Yeah, they're very they're great. It, it's just you know the average sale of a picture book, in case you didn't know, is between two and four thousand copies. That's not enough to earn a royalty. Talk well, to me about the economics of publishing, which uh, there'll well, be a lot of people who are thinking yeah. of writing a book, including myself. I'm dealing yeah. with rejection letters at the moment. Talk okay. about the rejection letters and all that. Rejection doesn't bother me because I'm an ad man mm, and, you, and you get rejection all the time. But uh, the economics of being a picture book author are pretty grim. You know, I think probably the first book I did, uh, I would be paid an advance of £3,000. That would be given to me in three tranches. The first one would be on signature. So, yeah, I'm going to do it. The second one would be on delivery. So you deliver the text. And the third £1,000 would be on publication. Thereafter, I would earn a 5% royalty on every book that is sold. The 5% royalty is not 5% of the cover price. It's 5% of price received. And price received is the price that the publishers get for the book. So if somebody asks you to discount that book by you know 60 70 80 percent which which happens what that means is the uh, the author will receive five percent of the 20 percent that yeah. is left which is nothing Zero, yeah. it's nothing 
you know, the very first book that I ever had published was Eat Your Peas. For many years, that was my bestseller. I think it's probably sold in excess of 100,000 copies, but over 17 years or 20 mm-hmm. years, in four years, the OI books have sold over a million. Really? Over okay. a million copies. And I don't know why. It's just happened. And you did self-publish, but yes. we'll talk about how you did yeah. that later. Yeah. But did it, is it better now for somebody like you, or someone who's trying to get into picture storybooks for kids, to start with self-publish? Or is no. it better to have the distribution and the I wouldn't, of- yeah. Self-publishing isn't a good idea, I don't think. Unless you're, you know... If you're if you're publishing online and it's, and I have to say I'm a I'm a techno numpty and I yeah, don't yeah. really get all that stuff, at least your overheads are smaller. But if mm. you're if you're going to self-publish, you can't just ring up a factory mm-hmm. somewhere and say, oh, can I have seven copies? They'll go, no, you can have seven thousand copies mm. or two thousand copies, but you're not having you can't have seven copies because you know yeah. the, the economics just don't work. They're not yeah. right. The one picture book that I self-published, I had to import two or three thousand copies an awful lot of those books are still sitting in a farmer's barn yeah, yeah. in a steel storage unit because uh and i love the book uh and maybe i'll, I'll read an extract you know yeah. in a moment um i love the book it's one of my favorite books but if you don't have distribution mm. if you don't have you know the bookshops on your side so we're going to get a little lost Beatles track kind of thing here from you, <laughs> yeah. are we? This book, you know, you're going to read a little excerpt from, let's do that, your second one, the little excerpt from the book that you love. Okay, you well, on. this is, um, again, it's uh, it's built around an observation, and the observation was, uh, it was uh, something that I'm sure lots of parents have, have probably experienced. Your little boy, your little girl is in the bath, they have a bath, they come out of the bath, you tell them to put their pyjamas on, and suddenly... They go very silly and decide that actually they don't want to put their pyjamas on. In fact, all they want to do is run around the house stark naked. And I, my son, my eldest son did that. And and, uh, when he was running around the house being super naked man, I suddenly thought, do you know what? It's been a long time since I've seen a streaker on the television. Because when I was a kid... You know, you couldn't watch. You couldn't watch anything without somebody naked running, running through the. You know, it was like happened cricket. You you know, girl. What was her name? Erica Rowe. Erica Rowe. Rowe. Where is she now? Yeah. Yeah. So whatever uh, happened to streaking? Answer. Send me an email. Anyone listening? Yeah. So you know. So I took the idea of streaking a little a little boy streaking, and I took it as far as I could take it. The book is called Nuddy Ned. I'll read you a little a little bit now. Busy in the bedroom, making up Ned's bed. There was Mum and there was Dad. But where was Nuddy Ned? Ned was in the bathroom, standing on the mat, all clean and fresh and sparkling. Thank Bubble Bath for that. Your jimmy jams are on the shelf, your bathrobe's by the door, and don't leave talcum powder footprints on the floor. Ned looked in the mirror and did a little wiggle. He waved his arms and jumped about and then began to giggle. His heart filled up with naughtiness. His eyes began to flash. He did a hop and then a skip and then he made a dash. Yahoo, said Ned. Wahey, said Ned. They don't teach this at school. Life is far more interesting with nothing on at all. Mum and Dad came running out and watched with open jaws as Ned ran naked round the house, slamming all the doors. A crazy son has lost the plot. No ounce of sense remains. Maybe all the bubble bath has soaked into his brains. <laughs> Ned did nutty cartwheels and star jumps willy-nilly. He'd never felt so loopy-loo. He'd never been so silly. Put some clothes on. Get dressed now. Don't you be so bold. Ned's mum and dad were not impressed, but Ned would not be told. I'm nuddy Ned, I'm nuddy Ned, Jim Jams aren't for me. I'm never wearing clothes again, it's the nuddy life for me. Ned leapt across the sofa and raced into the hall, then charged out through the front door with nothing on at all. So, that's nuddy Ned. Now, immediately, you, you, you preface this in your talk about <laughs> the uh, sensitive nature of child running yeah. around naked, which I, you know, back to our earlier conversation about molly coddling kids and, and overprotecting them well i get um you know i've had letters from uh, parents saying that is so my that's so my son yeah that's so my yeah. you know i'm not gratuitously implying that children should be running down the high street with no clothes no. on through the precinct and through the pizza hut yeah. you know house and all that stuff i as an author as a children's author i i listen a lot i listen to my kids i listen mm. to their friends I've got a very, very good memory for what it was like to be, you know, yeah. their age. If I listen to my kids or I watch my kids and they do something that makes me laugh, I think that's fair game. And yeah. I think I can build a book around that 
and it's not a book for everybody. I don't think mm. I should ever have to apologise for writing a book that that isn't everybody's cup of tea. In fact, I quite like writing stuff that yeah, maybe isn't everybody's yes. cup of tea. Yeah. I mean, when um, I listened to it, I thought about the King Emperor's New Clothes. Yeah. Okay, it's the son of, yeah. so to speak. But you yeah. know, the, the, and it was a child. Yes. Who called out the emperor for yes. being in the nip? Not, yes. Not all the courtiers yes. and all the people. Yeah. And then they all went, oh, the yeah. kids, right? So out yeah. of the mouth of babes. Yeah. And also the, the joy of the naughtiness of that. Like kids, when they run around, they know they're being yes. naughty. Yes, they do. And I, I'm, I'm not going to be yeah. too much of a spoiler, but at the yeah. end, the kid tends to win his parents over. He does. But actually, I think that's one of the funniest books mm. I've ever written. Yeah, I love uh, and I'm very proud of it. Um, I left advertising because the only ideas I were having was having at the time were advertising-related and uh, for a long, long time, uh, I've always tried to think in as many directions as I could. Advertising doesn't actually allow you to do that. You know, if you walk into a sweet shop and you look at us the, at the sweetie bar, I would love the brief, come up with a new chocolate bar. Come up with a sweet that no one's yeah. ever seen before. You know, walk into Sainsbury's and look at the shelves. Look at the ready meals. You go, I'd love to come up with a ready meal. I'd love to... I, I don't think there is a brief that I wouldn't take on unless it's a really heavy if it's if it's a technology brief I am going to struggle right. because it's that's not that's not my bag at all but perversely if I was running a technology product you'd be the first person I put on it oh really okay because I think the biggest problem in that area is it's too many people who know too much about shit that you, yeah if you can make it make sense to you then you can advertise yeah it maybe you know maybe. this whole idea of having tech experience to work on tech to me is ridiculous but anyway go on well sorry for interrupting. so so when i eventually left advertising i set off on what i thought was a kind of single-minded course but uh, i had to sell my house to be able to pay my bills to write you know to put myself in a position where i could write books but the moment I sold my house, I had a, if you like, a little windfall because obviously I sold a, a big house and, mo- and downsized and that put money in the bank. And the moment I had money in the bank, I just thought, hang on, what other ideas can I have and in how many different directions? Yeah. Over the next eight years, I went on what I called this morning an ideas rampage. I started an ideas company as a joke because there was only me I was the only member of staff I made myself creative emperor that was a big mistake because if you ever hand a card to somebody with the words creative emperor on it they think you're a total yeah, twat they don't see the irony they don't yeah. see the irony and uh, and I didn't mean it to be like but I'd been through a period in advertising where I'd watch people being so obsessed with Title. with, yeah. with titles and I used to watch it. It was like battling it's worse tops. Worse than America. Everybody, vice president. Well, what are you? Yeah. What are you? Okay. Well, I'm going to be vice admiral. Or <laughs> Rear admiral. Gonna, more like. So, <laughs> so I so I made myself creative emperor. I was the only one on the team. The beauty of that is um, I was never wrong. Yeah. Um, and if I had some money in the bank, I could develop things to a point. I tried to point myself at the clothing industry, the fashion industry, the toy industry, the conf- uh, confectionery industry, the music industry, yeah, no, the contemporary have, art industry. You don't just have ideas. You have them fleshed out, yes. drawn up, yeah. ready to rock, yeah, which now, is scary. Now, now, the thing is, you know, it gave me an opportunity to visualize everything. I'm pretty good at that, but I, I need a Mac operator who can, yeah. sit, I can sit down with the designer. And, of course, at the end of every uh, idea that I developed... He billed me, as he should do. And, of course, over time, my poor old wife would suddenly go, what's this bill for? And i go, yeah. oh, well, it's for... It's not a soap on a rope. It's a something else on a rope. And I think it would really <laughs> take... A, on a rope. It's a pope on a rope. It's a pope on a rope or a tope on a rope. And it, it's this happened over a course uh, of eight years. The money just dwindled. The money just again. disappeared. You know, you, know, you can't import 12,500 toys yeah. and start a toy company without spending a lot of money. You can't self-published without mm. spending a lot of money. You did have an employee called the Great Bisquito. Yeah, so the, 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 when I go into schools and talk to kids, if you just stand in front of an assembly full of children and go, hello, let's talk about my books. You know, if your books are funny, then okay, they'll go with it. But I, I, I believe, especially if you've got year sixes, sixes oh, they're the oldest kids in the... Yeah. In a, and they, they are a cut above everybody. They sit on a bench quite often. <laughs> All the other kids are cross-legged on the floor you need to go into assembly and you need to win their respect. So I'm not going to win their respect piling in with my books. Yeah. So I tell them that um, 
I have Jedi combat skills or I have I am an X X man I'm called Biskito and uh, I have the ability to save the world uh, with biscuits because I can I can flick uh, biscuits a very long way I've been to a summer fate at a school this is the God's honest truth and I have had children on one side of the school building waiting for me to throw uh, a rich tea biscuit over the school building Brilliant. they are on the other side waiting for a for it to come through the air like a spaceship. The great Biscuito displayed his uh, talents in his speech today, and uh, he can flick biscuits. They, they, I would imagine he could flick a biscuit 50 metres, I'd yeah. say, you know, halfway down yeah. a running track, with some venom, you know, so they, they take an eye out, if you're not careful. It doesn't always go down well, i say. If I do that in schools, I, I, again, I didn't say, I didn't mention this. I was in one school, I'd flicked a, uh, a cream cracker at the length of the, uh, the assembly hall, it hit some curtains, fell on the floor, broke into pieces, and all the year sixes at the back got a bit overexcited about it. I then moved on to a, a rich tea. Suddenly, um, somebody down the perimeter of the assembly hall stood up and left the room. And I wondered, I wonder who, I wonder who she is. Anyway, she, uh, she left. She was the headmistress. Within probably five minutes of me of carrying on with her, I moved on to Ginger Nuts yeah. and... Uh, she suddenly came back in to the with a uh, dustpan with a cleaner. <laughs> she brought a cleaner in with a dustpan. Well, not a dustpan, broom, a broom, and a. That'd be a great sketch, yeah. And uh, I, I actually don't tell teachers what I'm going to do, um, and I try and avoid eye, eye contact. But I tell you, on that occasion, I was I, I went all hot because you think oh, you're in trouble. This is. <laughs> I'm in trouble, and I'm probably going to get told off afterwards. I'm you never to grew up, did you? I didn't grow up. No, I didn't. Isn't that great, though? I, I'm. I. It's the one thing I never want to do is fully grow up. Yeah, you know, still be a kid about stuff, and maybe throw tantrums every now and then. But you know, just but to write children's books, you you have to be rooted in your childhood. You have to. If you've forgotten, or if you've lost touch with your childhood and your memories. Yeah. Um, my memories of, of being a kid were so acute, really so strange. Very, very deep memories. You know, you have to retain that to write for children. Probably shouldn't say this, but I don't write for children. I write for me, and I hope very much that children will enjoy, but I don't set out to... I don't have an agenda when I write my books. Well, if I do have an agenda, it's how much fun can I have? How lateral can I be? We have yeah. to round the circle. I've yeah. taken up loads of your time yeah, with the story of your daughter, which... Uh. <laughs> We mentioned earlier, we have to round yeah. the circle, because I didn't mention it at the top of the podcast. Yeah. One of the ideas <laughs> Kes did was... It was Bad Teddy. Bad Teddy. Uh, as I say, I'm still very much in touch with my childhood. I, I had three cuddly toys as a, as a kid. Uh, one was my teddy, one was my panda, and one was my uh, monkey. I still have them. They're reunited after all this time. They're in, they sit in my cupboard. I don't know why I did this, but I, I had this kind of dark, dark kind of idea that my beloved Teddy could suddenly sort of kind of transform into something a little bit dangerous and a bit, you know, psychotic. So my son Jack is a photographer. I got him round to the house and I said, look, I want to do four photographs of my Teddy, but he's now da he's bad Teddy. And when bad Teddy gets going, he really does things he shouldn't do. One of the things, uh, one of the images... It was a chopping board. There was a toy duck on the chopping board and a kitchen knife thrust through the toy duck's heart. Um, Bad Teddy was behind the uh, the chopping board and you knew he'd done it. Another one was a, was a picture of Bad Teddy sitting alongside uh, my daughter's favourite dolly. <laughs> and Bad Teddy had a lipstick in his paw and he'd defaced, <laughs> he'd completely defaced... Uh, my daughter's dolly's face drawn around and around and Angry. around and around all over <laughs> this beautiful dolly's face i thought it was really funny and uh so did my son but then of course i looked at the uh my watch and my daughter was coming home from school in five minutes and she didn't know what i'd done to her dolly so of course <laughs> i hurriedly got the doll and tried to wipe the lipstick off but it wouldn't come off yeah i then got bleach and of course, my daughter walked through the uh, into the house. I think she was probably about eight at the time, something like eight, nine. Mm. And there was her dolly. It, 
it was like a I don't know how you describe it really her face those movie scenes where girls it, lose their shit and they cover <laughs> they cut their hair with shears yes. and they cover themselves in yeah. clown rouge it was like that. yeah I couldn't get the lipstick <laughs> off and my daughter was absolutely furious uh, she couldn't believe I'd done that and of course um, uh, in my presentation today Ten years later. Uh, ten years later, I don't have computer <laughs> skills. Um, my daughter always helps me out with my presentations, PowerPoints. And, of course, I found Bad Teddy in my files, buried in my files, got them out. And uh, not only did she kind of, uh, you know, get the shivers when she looked, when I reminded her of what I'd done to her dolly, she then looked at another one of the images we'd taken and it was bad Teddy with a uh, a box of matches on the floor and a, and a single match in his paw. And to the right of bad Teddy sitting on the floor was her tiny little white, tiny Teddy. But I'd set fire to him. <laughs> I'd set fire to her Teddy. And she uh, never realised, she never missed the Teddy. And there she was at 17 years old looking at this picture going, well, I can't tell you what she said, yeah. but she was absolutely horrified. That I'd done that. Bad Teddy also has a great look about him. He does. He yeah. has those kind of the, the central casting. You, you can't yeah. read his no. eyes. You can't read his eyes. Myself you know? and my girlfriend, you'll meet. <laughs> we'll, we'll go and yeah. have a drink with her. Yeah. We, we have. Uh, she has two kids, but we have a, a, a pink unicorn yeah. called Tracy. That's a they. She's not. She's gender fluid, and she yeah. comes everywhere with us. And yes. we photograph. Like if we're in a posh yeah. restaurant with friends, yeah. we, and like my girl's a little bit younger than me, and I'm, it's kind yeah. of a bit is this Sean's new girl with the teddy <laughs> but, we, but we and we have it's a bit like the gnome that goes around yeah. the world Tracy's everywhere yes. Tracy got kidnapped in yeah. Australia was posted back yeah. and, um, and and so everyone now looks at us as these kind of fucking yes. weird couple with our pink our, and we love it and, yeah. and it's the, the people who come out on Facebook who love it yeah. they take just joy out of the stupidity and the puerility yeah. out of yeah. it but there's a lot of other people who I know are going Sean for fuck's sake man yeah. And they're mainly people who are parents with kids and looking yeah. at me going, Sean, would you ever grow up, would you? Yeah. Would you stop fucking around yeah. now with the yeah. old toys? Yeah. You know? Well, I'll tell you Never. what, I'll tell you what I do is so I'll, um, Dead Snowmen. I've done no. them as well. Dead Snowmen. Dead Snowmen has melted. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so just a few things on the, no, yeah. Well, yeah, so like a friend of mine, um, he, uh, yeah, John, my, my, uh, one of my previous art directors, I drew loads of Dead uh, Snowmen scenarios and he went off and he's he's shot six of them, I think. Yeah. Uh, it's a beach. There's a towel. There's two sticks. There's a carrot. carrot. And there's two pieces a of pipe. coal. And there, and there's a damp towel. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> there's Lovely. a really damp towel. And if Brilliant. you run with that idea, you'd be amazed what you can come up with for dead snowmen. And that well, was I want to talk to you. We have Knife <laughs> Kitty. So Knife Kitty's not unlike that. Teddy, we're right. here today, so... Knife Kitty, there. <laughs> so Knife Kitty, we're talking about that. Kind Sounds of like a podcast. movie. That's, yeah, that's yeah. Knife movie. Kitty's <laughs> Knife Kitty might stroke you like this, <laughs> not like this. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, you had waterbed, you have no waterbed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, 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 yeah. All right, last okay. question because right. you've been very kind to give me so much yeah. of your time. What do you say to the kid, you? What do you what? say to the kid? What do you say to the the, the twelve year old you, thirteen, fifteen, whatever time you want to pick? In your formative years, you said it was a happy childhood. You said, I could feel so much of your childhood coming out and your work, mischief and, and playfulness. Yeah. What would you say to that young kid if looking back? You know, when I went into advertising, I couldn't speak in a meeting. You know, a very self-conscious kiddie. I had a very unhappy senior school. I didn't like the dynamic of it. I'd, I'd come from junior school where I was, where everything, there was an innocence about junior school mm. that the moment I stepped into into uh, senior school it changed everybody instead of just getting on with each other started to become very critical of it you know everyone formed cliques everyone do you think you can beat this person up? how do cool you think? are you yeah, yeah and, and <clears throat> I, I hated uh, senior school and I think I would say to that person because I think there were probably kids who were in the same boat as me you know just don't worry it's not the end of the world mm. You know, when you're 10, you can't imagine being 14. Mm. I'm 58 now, and I'm, I'm as happy as I've ever been. Brilliant. Same I'm, here. I'm as productive yeah. as I've ever been. Although it's hard to kind of imagine yourself getting through stuff. Yeah. You can and you will. And, uh, you know, that's what I would say to that, that, that kid. Because 
you know, you need someone to come and sometimes put your arm around you and go, it's going to be all right. And uh, I remember my dad doing that once, although he didn't know what was going on. Yeah. Uh, I do remember him coming into my bedroom one day and just going, are you all right? You know. Nice. Play us out with one of your books. Okay, I'm going to, um, as I've always as I've always tried to uh, go places that um, other authors or poets haven't been. Studied Keats and Shelley and Wordsworth mm-hmm. and all the great poets. And I suddenly realised that um, I'd hit upon a subject that none of them had actually touched upon. And that uh, that subject is toenails. <laughs> and um, I've written a poem very aptly called Toenails. <laughs> and uh, I won't read all of it, but it, uh, it goes a bit like this. When we cut them, we don't know where on earth our toenails go. Toenails rocket through the air. They can land up anywhere. Toenails ping. Toenails zing. Toenails are most interesting. Forget about your nice neat piles. Rock hard toenails go for miles. Whiz through bathrooms, ping off beds, fly through windows, bounce off sheds. Left uncut, they'll grow and grow. But when you snip them, off they go. (laughs) Did you know my auntie Nelly found three toenails in her jelly? A next door neighbour, Mr Freer, found a toenail in his ear. Then there was a boy called Paul who found one in his desk at school. Mountain climber Horatio Sprout found one on a mountain goat. Window cleaner Henry Sedge found two on a window ledge. I've even heard a high court judge found some in a bag of fudge. An astronaut high up in space saw one float right past his face. Biggest toenail I have found stood 15 metres off the ground. At first I thought it was a boulder, but actually it was something older. A fossil from the days of yore scissored from a dinosaur. Imagine your surprise response if that had landed on your bonce. 20 tons and sharp at that, it could have squashed a caveman flat. Today, the good news for us all is toenails tend to be quite small. So let them wing and ping and zing. Airborne flight is just their thing. Toenails mean no harm, mind you. Be careful when you pass the zoo. Why? Because the rhinos might be cutting their toenails. Do you know what a rhino's toenails are made of? Keratin? Concrete. Concrete. Yes. I do not know that. Yes. That was Kes Gray, the king of phonetics. <laughs> I got you on that one. <laughs> Look after yourself. Keep making kids smile. And keep making kids smile. I'll do my best. Lovely having a chat. Thanks, man. <laughs>